Yeah, so I don't tend to leave with the awards, but yeah, I won a few awards. So uh, the Deloitte Fast 50 in the year six times in the final bracket and one time a winner. Uh, and I promised Josh I wouldn't say this, but you did win the EY Entrepreneur of the Year as well. So uh, any other awards you can think of that you want to get out first? I think there's a, there's a wall of them at Focus, but there's, uh, look, the ones we're proud of is still, I mean, we, we met uh, Josh, kind of, what was it, about 2006, late 2006, early 2007, and, uh, you know, we were pretty early, just, just an idea, and I kind of said to Josh, and we, we met Josh through the award, and I said, we're going to win that award, and, uh, and we actually went on, went on and did that. So, so, this, so when you first, I mean, maybe let's go back to the very beginning, so when you first started Focus, and you had the foresight to pick up the phone to a big four accounting firm like Deloitte and say, I'm going to need you guys because I'm going to be colossal and we're going to need support and we're going to get it right from the start. Was that what was going to be ahead? Yeah, I know colossal was the word. We, we, we certainly felt one of the things we did really well was um, you know, we, we needed to command um, respectability. You know, like we didn't want to be just another startup in the, in the telco industry because there didn't so many of those. And, you know, I had a reasonable pedigree, and the guys that I hired had a reasonable pedigree. Um, but even little things, down to, you know, for 300 bucks a month, we got the naming rights to our building in North Sydney. You know, back then $300 was a lot of money to us, but just being able to put a focused house on our business card or our letterhead kind of was one of those things that people, when they get it, go, oh, focus house, these guys, you know, must, must be serious players. Um, so that was kind of part of it, and, uh, and really in reality, you know, going with the, with the big four was uh, obviously expensive, but, you know, uh, Josh and guys did some incredible deals for us. I think, I think he lost about $100,000 on his, on his first order with us, which was a pretty huge amount of money, but um, that just gave us that level of credibility when you put the accounts in front of investors or, uh, uh, you know, or, or, you know, when you look into list and if you've historically always been ordered by before. Um, and Deloitte Private, I don't want to plug them too much, um, but they, they actually, you know, they really get that. You know, they're the type of firm you can take on a smaller client and grow with you. Um, and, and that gives, I think, a huge amount of credibility. Yeah, from what I understand in those early meetings, I mean, you were literally sitting there saying, well, we're going to list in a few, I mean, this is almost pre-revenue, and you were talking about an IPO at that point. So... Tell us, I mean, was that, was that genuinely, when you, when you started the business, did you genuinely expect within eight years to be where you are now, running a billion and a half dollar telco giant? Yeah, no. <laughs> I think anyone who's six eight years later, you could get a company, probably got rocks in your head. But look, we, we looked at a growth path, you know, if we stay private, and the growth path kind of looked like that. And then we looked at a growth path if we could get access to public money, and the growth path looked like that, you know. It would enable us to make some acquisitions, which we could then build on. Um, you know, and that's really the reality. So people always ask me, you know, should I lose my business? The reality is, is only if you have a need for the access to fast capital, because there's a huge cost that comes with it, right? Obviously, the, the time, the, you know, just the physical listing costs, forward, um, you know, order costs, all of that stuff. But, you know, you can provide a huge amount of rocket fuel if you, if you get it right. Um, and, that, that's what, and that's why we wanted to list, was we had plans to grow like that, not like that, and we needed um, public money to do that. Yeah, so, I mean, that's a consistent story. Like, uh, the, one of the first breakfasts we held in, uh, in Melbourne, because we expanded to Melbourne earlier this year, was with Rod Drury. Uh, and I was asking him about what was going through his head when he listed zero. Uh, and I think that we, he actually used these words. He said, we realised that you need a shit ton of money in order to grow fast. I mean, was that a similar view to you, but what you had? Yeah, I think so. I mean, for us it was always about finding really good you know, businesses that we could buy to get product skill to expand beyond our initial product set. And we couldn't have reacted fast enough when we found those businesses by being private. You know, I'm, I'm an investor in a bunch of private companies and you'd see them, they talk about raising money, 
and it's like six, nine months later by the time I actually raise it. You know, in, in my second capital raising, we raised $50 million and we did it within 48 hours of deciding to do it. You know, is that fast? <laughs> and and that's second capital raise, is that the public market? Yeah, public market. Yeah, sorry, second public market capital raise. Right. It was, uh, I think we were two and a half years into listing uh, and literally we, we, we decided that uh, we were going to do the capital raise kind of Monday. Uh, went into trading halt Tuesday morning and we were back trading sort of uh, you know, uh, Thursday morning. It was, it was that fast. Wow. And, and so uh, before your IPO then, I heard you from the company that was very early days. I mean, let's go back to the genesis of, of Orcus. So you're sitting in your, your, your bedroom or your office, you're not happy in your current job. What made you want to start Volkes? If I'd been sitting in my garage, I'd probably would have got a higher valuation. Seems to be the case nowadays. So, in reality, I've worked in telecommunications all my life, and that's that's all I've ever done. So I knew that there was an opportunity in the market. You know, the wholesale supply of internet, which was our first product, you know, was was commanded by Telstra and Optus, and they were the biggest competitors of everyone else. So you, as an ISP, you know, back seven or eight years ago, had to buy your capacity from Telstra and Optus, who were your biggest competitors. So logically, I knew that people didn't want to do that, um, and people also sucked at doing it. I mean, telcos don't want to be good, you know. Apart from maybe IMF, Michael, big shout to Michael. They're about the only other telco that actually wants to be good in the industry. You know, people just don't view telecommunications companies as, as friendly businesses. So our goal was to be kind of, you know, the most loved telco still is the most loved telco. Uh, and we kind of ended up with this with this path to, to getting there. Um, so, so in terms of the, the I mean, how, how did you attract the initial investors? How did you find the business in those early days? Um, so we saw the opportunity. We kind of knew it was there. Um, I funded the business myself. I sold my house thanks to my wife. She she crazily let me do that. Um, and we and we put the money in to keep the business going for the first ooh, nine months. And we took on private investors, uh, one industry investor, uh, and a couple of private investors. Uh, and then we were cash flow positive. I mean, I think we were our first full financial year. We were cash flow and, and P and L profitable. Uh, so it was only really kind of nine, ten months that we were having to fund the business in terms of you know capex and, and, and a few big items. Very <laughs> lucky. Best time. Yeah. Most talented, most talented people of Europe did the most lucky. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was, it was a great quote at the EY Awards, which was um, you know we all had to have our, have our quote for the uh, the awards night. And one quote really rang true, which is. Some guy said, uh, it's funny, the harder I work, the luckier I get. Yeah, that was really, really good. Yeah, there's some truth in that. So the, I want to touch on the, the, the progress. You know, I sort of speak from experience here because, you know, I built a startup. We got to about 50 staff and then it sort of stalled. And then I wasn't the right guy for, for that role. But to go from where you went, for, which is, you know, basically the concept in the garage, funding it yourself, you know, there's, and there's steps along the way. So... You know, when you get to 30 staff, suddenly you've got a management layer. When you get to 100 staff, you've probably got two management layers. You've got culture, you've got cash, you've got... I mean, all the issues with growing a business. Uh, and in my view, people like you and uh, Rob Drury and Lee Jasper from Aconex, I mean, they've all done that. And the Atlassian Geo, I mean, they've all done that journey from from nothing to superhuman. Um, how, how do you do it? Because it's a very different skill set. Like what you're doing now, running a listed company, is totally different from hustling in your back room with your house in the way. Yeah, I suppose it, for me, it's always just been about the new challenge. You know, I've never stayed in a job more than kind of three or four years because I, I get bored with it, and I've always wanted to do you know something different. And I think the great thing about a fast-growing business is, is you know, if that's what you like, if you like doing different things, then you know, every couple of years, 
focus has been a different organisation. You know, I've gone from focusing on you know the bill and run and making sure that I'm acquiring every single customer to you know the next year managing people to the next year being listed to buying businesses, doing M and A, and then transforming, integrating those businesses. So each one of those is a new challenge. You know, as a person who likes challenges and likes learning new things, um, I think that's probably the difference. Is some some founders are just all about the technology. You know, they're programmers or they're or the you know, investment banker guys who are just all about you know, the deal. Um, but I think there's also founders, you know, Michael, Michael's another great example. There are founders who just <coughs> love the challenge of all parts of the different business. And you know, I, think, I, I think of myself like a sponge. You know, I literally get in there and I really want to understand every part of the business. You know, I, I want to be as good an accountant at reading the financial statements and, and talking eloquently about, you know, about our cash flow and our P&L to investors as I do talking about putting fiber in the street. I think it's just that first foot of knowledge. Um, and it's something I look for now. It's funny how you, kind of now that I've gone through that journey and I've worked out why I'm successful, you know, I can now go back and see other people and see what I'm looking for. And I think one of those things is you know, finding people that I'm going to invest in and, uh, as a private investment, you're looking for those people who have a first for all parts of the business. They're not just one trick. Kind of, I'm a programmer and I've built a really good app. Uh, you know, I'm a programmer, I've built a really good app, I know how to market it, I know what my target market is, I know what my, my numbers are, I know how much burn rate I've got left, and, and you know, they just kind of get across every part of the business. And I think that's probably what it is, is just, just being expunged and wanting to expand uh, rather than, I think, other people who are either, as I say, you know, very focused on one area, or they suddenly start believing their hype. You know, they think, hey, look, you know, I'm, I'm successful, I'm really, you know, everyone's throwing accolades, I'm winning, I'm winning awards. Therefore, I'm, you know, I'm on top of my game and you know, I'm, I'm, I'm number one. And I think you, lo- you lose your ability to kind of want to learn you know, and want to be taught and want to ask the stupid questions. And I think that's something that, that's helped me along the way. It's always been willing to you know, ask the stupid questions, you know, find out more um, rather than have to feel like because I'm the head of the company that I'm, I know everything. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, there's a blog post that I read called Weed But Why. They've done a post on why Elon Musk is the way he is, and he breaks down every single problem as if it's a software component from first principles. And it's to do with asking those questions, and I think that is the trait of the great entrepreneurs. It's like, why are we doing it this way? Yeah, that's a really good point. It's one thing we've always done internally focused, and it's just part of our DNA and our culture now, is we challenge the way that things have been done. We never say, you know, we've never done it from day one. We've never said, how has Telstra and Optus done it, and let's do it 10% better. You know, we come at it and say, what's the right way to do this? You know, we used to get really frustrated buying telco services, you know, over my career, and the telco services contracts that you get from, you know, or you say AT as an example, because they're no longer around, but, you know, you get something from AT and it would say, you have to give me, you know, your firstborn child, you know, in terms of, in terms of uh, you know, all of your business, your future business, anything you think about that you have to give me, and then there's all these clauses about contingent liabilities, and all these things that you never ever in your life can sign off, right? Nobody signs it off, yet they're all in the contract. So what that does is it just creates this massive legal rustle between you and the supplier every time you want to buy something from them, right? Every client will negotiate those points out. So why haven't we been there? You know, so from day one, we spec to our lawyer and we said, we want a contract that we can slide across the table to a customer and actually have them take, you know what, this is pretty reasonable assignment. Because ADAC cuts down on my work, but it also creates a fantastic first impression with the customer, right? This is my first real inter- interaction with a customer, and what am I telling them? I'm trying to screw them. No. Can't do that. So we went away and we said this to our lawyer. We said we want we want that fair contract. He came back and we read it. And I went, oh, this is this is you know, it's okay. And I said, would you, as my client, you know, as as my uh, advisor, let me sign this? You know, and he said, no. 
You haven't got to go back. You can contract and you kind of go, it's about right and, and we sign. Um, and we take that to, to you know, in Australia now, we go back to, say, the, you know, the Amcom contracts now, um, where we're changing those contracts, we're making them fairer. We call it contract nirvana. We want a simple process for contracting with customers that makes them have a good impression of us. Um, and that's just one of those things that, you know, if we looked at the way that other telcos have done it, we probably would have just pinched their contracts, changed the logo at the top, and, and run with it. But we actually approached it in a completely, you know, what is the best way, what makes sense, what's logical. And I think that's, that's to the point, and that's how good business is done. It's not trying to be 10% better than the, the, than the current guys. Yeah, I think, you know, I was reading the article, I think, you reference that and maximise selling time, minimise admin time. It's better for the client, better for your team. Yeah, and leave, and leave a positive impression, right? Yeah, um, exactly right. So, but we have a call that we should call it Michael Law here. So, I mean, he's, he's, we are in the presence of telco royalty, so thank you, Mike. You know, just, I mean, on that point, there is a question here. I mean, surrounding yourself with good advisors or coaches or mentors, because I think you and Mike are my sort of buddies and he's a few years ahead of you and he's you know, had a great success with Ironhead. Is that, has that been an important stage of your journey, to have people like David Spence or I mean, who, who, who do you list on your mentor roster? Um, yeah, one of the, I suppose one of the strange things, people always ask me about mentors, and I've never had a mentor, so, you know, I, I'm, I was never really good in school because I didn't actually like learning what people wanted to teach me, I wanted to learn what I wanted to learn, and that was actually frustrating, my parents were both school teachers, um, <laughs> as you can imagine, but, you know, I think I've just never had that relationship with someone that I, you know, that I go to them for advice, I want to kind of, you know, earn the scars myself, um, but, but equally, you know, having... Um, Great people, surrounding myself with great people that I'll keep plugging. The Deloitte team have just been incredible. Uh, you know, they've been around from the journey of pre-revenue to, you know, today where we're, you know, multi-billion-dollar uh, company, uh, and they've always been there for, you know, advice and kind of education and challenging, you know, and, and doing things in a really positive way. So I think it's not about necessarily having a mentor, but having partners that, that work with you rather than guys who just want to collect a fee and, and a checkbook, you know, um, have the checkbook open. So, you know, we've been really lucky with that. We've got a great board, David Spence, you know, for those of you who don't know, my chairman is uh, an incredible guy. He's one of these um, interesting people where you have to plan an extra 10 minutes whenever you're walking around town because literally every corner someone will stop him and say, hey, David, how are you going? You know, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very humbling experience to see, uh, to see how uh, well-connected he is. Yeah. Right, so, so I want to ask you about the difference, love versus like, uh, and Sam Altman, who is the founder of Y Combinator, I mean, he's got, if you're a startup in the room, you should read it, the, the startup playbook, um, and the difference between having a few, a smaller number of people who love you versus a larger number of people who like you. I mean, you, you have touched on this, as being, you want to be the number one telco, but you want your customers to, to, to love you. You have said things worse to that effect. That's, that's one of our goals up on our, on our wall. Our first goal is to be the most loved telco in the industry. Um, now, uh, you know, that's, that's primary, primarily what drives us. Um, you know, that, so, you know, to me, it's not about doing an adequate job. It's about doing the best job possible. Um, and I think that's, you know, you don't want to get caught into... Um, you know, focusing so much that you never get past a single point. We have, you know, we still apply kind of that typical 80% rule that, that most startups and competitive companies have, right? You get 80% of it right and then just move on to the next thing. Um, but you also want to do it well and, and be proud of it. And I think that creating culture is what's driven us from 100 people to now 700 people. You know, you, if you, you can't continue to kind of you know, um, get people 
to be the people that you want them to be in the organisation without culture. You know, you're not sitting next to them anymore, you're not in the same state as them or country, whatever it is. Um, so culture has really, really driven that shift. And to have that up on the wall that says we want to be the most loved telco you know, uh, in the industry drives everybody's behaviour. Everyone looks at that and goes, I know exactly what I want to do. I want to keep my customers happy. I want to do the right thing. I want to do the fair thing. Yeah, and, and really that, that's what then creates an organisation where other people want to come work. You know, the goal for me is I want the best people in every single role that's possible because that's how we're going to get to being the most loved telco. You know, it's how we're going to be successful. So creating a culture where people go, you know what, I want to go work for those people. That's that's does it for me. I mean, in the early days when, when I used to you know, hire people kind of around that 20 or 30 staff, I'd actually offer people the job before discussing the pay. You know, we'd go, okay, we really love you, we want you to offer, offer you the job. Do you want to come work for us? And if they said yes, they were absolutely, you know, the people we wanted. Uh, if they said, ooh, how much? Then we'd go back to the interview process and think really hard about it. Because uh, we wanted people who, number one priority was to come and work for us because we were doing cool things and we had a great culture, not, you know, what's in my back pocket. Yeah, so as Peter Drucker said, culture eats strategy for breakfast. And it sounds like you're, you know, strong believer. I mean, I'm, I work at Amazon Web Services and we have a very strong degree in culture. Uh, and it's, you know, a, a lot of the reason for, um, you know, it being a great place to work and, and the growth rate we're seeing. Uh, you know, I presume. So, yeah, if you touch on the specific elements of the culture that you're trying to measure and, 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 and attract and nurture. Yeah, I suppose we, we did two things. We hit about probably 150 staff and we worked out, you know, the only way to actually drive the organisation, you know, it wasn't about one-on-one -on -one interaction, it was about setting really clear goals. You know, we, we did sort of staff surveys and everyone was a bit lost as to what we were trying to achieve. We were having fun doing it, but we didn't know where we were going. Um, so we went to back to kind of the drawing board and we thought, well, what do we need to kind of give people, you know, the direction? And it's, it's really obvious, but most startups don't ever do it, and that set really clear, concise goals. You know, our goal was um, to be the most like telco. Our second goal was to be a billion-dollar company within three years. Um, you know, we achieved that. I picked that one. Um, and even down to simple things like, you know, we wanted to have the second most connected fibre network, you know, in Australia, which we reckon we're pretty close to now. Um, so it was about having goals that everyone could, you know, use in their day-to-day kind of work role, uh, and then values. So the values for me are how you want to achieve those goals. We don't want a business that just goes and achieves goals you know, under any circumstance. We want to achieve it our way. Um, so, you know, some of our, our values are, you know, no Muppets. You know, we don't want people in our organisation who are Muppets, who are just idiots or create problems or, you know, those guys that just make a decision really, really super difficult. We don't want those guys in our organisation, so our value is no Muppets. And it's amazing, once we put that up on the wall, you start identifying, you go, that guy's a Muppet. You know, he just keeps <laughs> coming up in conversations. You know, this guy is causing so many problems, you know. Um, and then it makes you disagree about it. Go right, we need to exit. You know, that's just, we're going to live our values, we're going to exit it. Another one about new values is having a conversation. Too many times you sit there sort of you know, un unhappy with an employee or they're unhappy with a manager or you know, some, happy about, unhappy about a decision, but you never talk about it because it's hard, right? I think one of the things I've learned about when I'm travelling is Australians are very bad at having difficult conversations. You know, we like to sort of, hey, you going, oh, all good, yes, all fine. Uh, you know, in, in Italian culture or Russian culture or anywhere else in the world, he'll go, no, it's absolutely crap, I'm going to pull you up on this and tell you right now why I don't think that's a good decision. So we actually really try and promote that. And so one of the values is to have the conversation. Um, but it's all about creating the way that you want the business to, to work. Values, a lot of people, most big businesses have values, but they're so 
I mean, almost useless in a lot of ways. They just stick the teamwork poster up on the wall and that's values done, check, move on. We wanted values that were tangible to people. You know, um, you know we have uh, a value of don't screw the customer. That's our value. You know, make sure every single decision, you put yourself in the customer's shoes and think about how something affects them. That's the entire value. It's, you know, it's kind of up there on the wall. Um, so for us, it's about having really tangible things that people relate to uh, rather than kind of teamwork posters on the wall. And that drives the behaviour which gets you to the goals. Yeah, and I think that's for, and again, for any startups in the room, that's a big lesson. Culture is the most important thing that you can do, especially your first hires. Um, can we talk about TPG? Is that allowed? Sure. I was going to say, we've had some really good relationships with people, great relationships with Macquarie, and uh, sorry, not with Deloitte, but uh, we've had a relationship with Macquarie. So, so it's probably fair to say you're off TPG's Christmas card list, is that, is that right? Oh, well, apparently. <laughs> so, well, it kind of goes back, I mean, again, I overheard some stuff about a previous thing where TPG were involved, but, you know, let's talk about Ancom. So you wanted to buy Ancom probably the start of the year, so... I mean, tell us about the Ancom story and then we'll maybe ask about why TPG was so anti why, why did you want to buy Ancom? So we, we looked at Ancom, you know, probably oh God, almost two years ago. Um, they were about twice our size uh, and they were a much more mature business, a lot more fibre net, you know, network, a lot more buildings, a lot more customers. Uh, and we set the goal to, right, that's it, you know, this is our future, we can want to grow, grow big enough to eventually buy them. And then kind of this time last year, uh, we, we sat around, we, we acquired a, a sneaky little 4.9% uh, stake in, um, in them off-market, uh, then went to 9.9% uh, 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 where we released, and then we, that forced the conversation. You know, we wanted to actually go in there with a, a conversation that had to end in an outcome, because our interactions with them and their management previously was always, yeah, look, it's a good idea, let's think about it, you know, we'll, we'll come back in six months, and, and you know, just never ever seem to eventuate into anything. So. By going public and having 9.9% put the you know, immediate spotlight on to, uh, to at least entertain more seriously our, our approaches. Um, but it was, a, it was a cracking deal for us because it gave us you know, national coverage. You know, previously we've been incredibly focused on the East Coast. We had fibre and data centres on the East Coast. You know, we're growing incredibly well. We're attracting all of the big name clients. Uh, but we're missing out massively on the, on the, you know, the kind of national opportunities, the businesses that need coverage on, on both coasts. Uh, and it was just a great mix. You know, there, there were a good culture there. Um, you know, fibre network in WA and SA. We were kind of on the east coast. Um, so there's a lot of things to like. And when you did the deal, what was the relative size, like revenue <laughs> terms between the two? Uh, well, relative, they were a bigger business than us. Absolutely. Uh, they, uh, when we approached them, they were doing on a kind of a run rate basis, probably 20 percent more revenue than us, uh, about 15 percent more profit, and they're about. I'm going to say probably about 20% bigger than us. Uh, by the time we bought them, obviously, we, we, we'd grown and uh, we were actually, um, I think as we closed the transaction, that was still just a tad larger, but we'd, uh, we'd acquired them. Okay, so, so uh, you announced, I think it was earlier this year, we'd want to do it. I can't remember the exact date you said about playing that, but too much has happened since um, then. Yeah, a few people, I mean, it, was, it wasn't just TPG that got upset at it, but they were the principal ones. I mean, they were the ones that tried to shut it down. So yeah, tell us about that. Well, it's funny, it's like, you know, it always, there's, a, there's kind of an ironic twist to uh, any of these stories. We were sitting in, it's probably March, I would say March or April, we were sitting in a, a management meeting um, talking about how we were going to integrate these guys. You know, we were already, we'd done staff surveys, we'd done the Great Place to Work um, survey, which we love. We'd actually done it on, on income staff. This is pre the transaction closing. You know, we had our all charts out. We were working out sort of, you know, how we were going to bring these two businesses together. Uh, literally, you know, the kind of final stages of, of that planning um, when my phone started going nuts, you know, it was uh, 
and it was all of our shareholders calling us saying Macquarie are leading a, a raid on TPG stock. They're, you know, they're trying to buy 10% to, uh, to uh, block you um, for TPG. And they had no intention of bidding for the company. They just don't want you to have it. Uh, and, you know, kind of the, 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 the colour goes out of your face. And I'm in there with all my management team. And I'm like, I'm just like speechless for 30 seconds. Chris, Chris will remember this. I'm just sitting there and going, uh, guys, I don't know what's just happened, but it looks like, you know, the TPG going to block us. I mean, it was literally that far out of the blue that um, you know, we, we'd never even considered that we were, as I say, we were in the home stretch of integrating, you know, we, 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 were, we were done and dusted at that point. Um, so yeah, I went out to my desk and started, you know, as you do in these situations, you go on autopilot and you don't, you know, you don't start worrying about what ifs, you start getting on the phone and calling the shareholders and I was trying to, uh, trying to find another shareholder who might bid more for the stock than them and talking to hedge funds and coming up with all these kind of crazy ideas and I had literally 45 minutes. Uh, you know, we, we looked at it and you know, kind of that, everyone wrote the deal off about it as it done and dusted, you know, had 9%. Uh, we, we sat around that day, literally, um, kind of sat around sort of pretty, pretty downbeaten and we put a lot of effort and a lot of money and you know, we probably, probably $5 million into this, into this um, offer. Our share price was going to tank because the offer wasn't going ahead, so we'd lose probably another $15 million on mark-to-market gains that we had on, uh, on their stock. Uh, it was a pretty grim moment. Uh, we came in the next morning, we got on a conference call, and I said to everyone, what are we going to do? Are we going to just cave? That's fine, we, we can do that. Or are we actually going to put our head up and go down fighting? Um, and we all agreed we were going to go down fighting. So we, we fought tooth and nail, we put a plan in, we pushed the shareholder meeting out so we could make, uh, you know, make more of an effort to educate shareholders. And I can't say you know, get people to vote for it, but to educate shareholders that they needed to vote. You know, this was their company, they could vote either way, obviously, but they had to vote um, to, to take control of their company back. Then we started a big media, big social media campaign. Um, we gave TPG more time, which was difficult, because they then went and bought more shares. So they, you know, while we were using the time to gain more shareholders support, they were using the time to buy more shares, and they got up to 19.9%. Uh, which is considered a slam dunk in Australian corporate history. No one's ever defeated at 19.9% locking stake. Um, but we, we kept that high, we, we fought hard, and amazingly we scraped in by you know, hundreds of thousands of shares. Yeah, well, no, it's an amazing story, so I did want to touch that. Again, it, it, it touches on my point about being that chameleon. I mean, you've gone from, I don't know, the, uh, the Mark Zuckerberg and the social network movie to almost Gordon Gekko in Wall Street. It's an extraordinary transition. This is for you too. Spencerly started out as I could get into that Gordon Gekko. Actually, interesting, Wall Street was my favourite movie as a kid. I just found that movie amazing. I don't know. It's what about the Wolf of Wall Street? Did you like that one too? That was a little different, but yeah. Uh, all right, so I'm going to go forward to questions in a couple of minutes, but I did want to ask you about some of your, your passions. So, um, basketball. So you are now the owner of a basketball team. Yep. Is it, is it, is it NBL? NBL, yeah, Australian version of the NBA. Yeah. So it's not quite the NBA, but similar. So tell us about how you ended up as the owner of a sports club. Uh, look, it's actually, yeah, it's a really stupid story. I've never been into basketball. Um, my friend owned a team. I went to a game with him. I fell in love with the idea of a sport because everyone told me, um, you just can't make money doing sports, stay away from it, don't do it. I think Josh you know, Austin from Deloitte did, did some DD work for me on, on the Hawks and I think your advice was run a mile basically, wasn't it? Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. Um, and so, you know, everyone's telling me it's impossible to make money out of sport and kind of that, that part of me really wants to challenge that. Um, so, you know, I bought the team and I want to prove people wrong that, you know, you can at least get to break even um, owning a sporting team. And we're, we're on the way, we're certainly financially better than, than we were and... Uh, it's just, it's a hugely different business, you know. 
I can cut a player with the coaches, you know, we, we go out there and we, this player's no longer performing well, we need to make a change, we cut a player, he's a crowd favourite, and suddenly on, on you know, Facebook and social media, they're um, basically getting death threats. <laughs> it's like that kind of, that kind of emotive um, reaction to, to, to business decisions, and it took me a long while to realise that you know, the right business decision isn't necessarily the right decision in, in, a, in a sporting team, because the fans are, you know, you don't have fans in business, right? You know, we're all in business, we don't have... Fans, we have customers or suppliers. In, you know, in sporting, you know, you have fans. That's a very different breed, a different animal to a to a customer. Yeah. All right. So probably one of the last questions from me, and then I hope you're all got your questions ready. And I just want to pander to the techies in the crowd and uh, maybe test it in this. So, I mean, you were talking four years ago about the transition from IPv4 to IPv6. You know, as a as a sort of punter out there, this doesn't seem to be much like. So, what were the problems with IPv4, and why do we need to move to the new thing? I mean, just a recap for the crowd. So, the differences and what's happening with that. Yeah, I and mean, this has been an issue for, for far longer than I've even been involved in the industry. It's been thirty years, forty years that this is a problem, and it started. It's like saying, well, we had let's say we had two digital postcodes. I mean, that's the problem. Is you know the internet space has grown so much larger than the available addressing that we've got to give every single thing that's on the internet a unique address. There's just physically too many addresses, too many things on the internet, and not enough addresses. So I always say it's like having two two digit postcodes. Um, you you look at that when you were kind of on the bounty and um, and and coming to Australia. And you know, that's huge, right? We're never going to need more than two-digit postcodes. I think my famous quote was to our billing guys, we're never going to have more than 100 customers, two-digit is fine. And, and, you know, things grow, right? So the internet's grown so much larger than that, we, um, we have to move to a new addressing scheme. And the problem is, is by adding new addresses to the end of the old addresses, uh, you'd have to actually go and change every single device on a single day, and you couldn't do that. So what we did is we came up with this whole new internet addressing called IPv6, which was much, much larger in terms of the space. I mean, you can pretty much give every grain of sand on a beach an internet address now. Uh, but the problem is that the two are not backwards compatible. So, you know, you can't talk from an IPv4 address to an IPv6 address without some form of translation or device in the middle. Um, so it's an interesting problem. I mean, this is, a, this is going to be an, an issue over the next coming years. Uh, there are simply not enough addresses for every person in this room to have uh, a unique address in your home. So that means you're going to get translated, you're going to have devices in between, which means you know, some of the functionality that you might want to have, you can't get. You know, it's going to create more things to break in the middle. Um, so we have to move to IPv6, but it's happening incredibly slowly. Did, does, I mean, is this a big problem? Does this keep you awake at night? Are we going to hit some sort of you know, um, Y2K problem? <laughs> no. What keeps me awake? Wake at night now as a public company CEO is next next half earnings, but um, <laughs> the internet. I think there's far smarter people working on this than, than I am. But look, some 10% of the traffic on the internet is now IPv6, which is amazing. Google's turned it on, and that's made a huge, huge difference. Um, so look, it'll get sorted, but it's going to take uh, a pretty concerted effort and I think some momentum behind it. Okay, so what, what's next for August? What's what are you doing in five years' time, ten years' time? Um, well, what we'd like to be is the um, you know the telco of choice for for everyone from consumer, you know, residential, all the way through to uh, large, large business and corporate, and we want to be incredibly successful in, in all of those spaces. You know, we want to overtake um, TPG in terms of size of, 
residential base revenue in corporate, um, you know, and in reality we want to see even, you know, even beat Optus. So that's where we want to be and, and uh, that's a huge challenge. But, you know, when we were a $100 million company, uh, getting to a billion dollars seemed like a, a huge challenge as well. So, you know, we're pretty good at, uh, you know, having red hot goes at these things. So you know, hopefully we'll, we'll achieve or get pretty close to it. Okay, last question from me and then we'll go with the crowds. So NBN and, and government, I mean, in some ways, from two months ago, it feels like we've got a new regime or a new government, uh, but the NBN still the same. So just give us your thoughts on, you know, should the government be building our fibre network and what do you think of the current government? Okay, that's, we're probably need an hour for that. Yeah. Um, that's a really complicated topic. I was always a huge opponent of um, Senator Conroy's um, plan for fibre to every home. Not because I'm, you know, I'm a techie, I love fibre, um, that's, that's we all do. Uh, the problem was it was just never going to be feasible to do it for the amount of money they wanted to spend. You know, $34 billion was the original budget, does not get any fibre into 93% of Australian homes. Uh, it's also incredibly disruptive, you know, you've got to tear, tear the footpath up and the garden, rose bed, rose beds, uh, you know, of every single house in Australia, that doesn't make sense. Uh, and it's certainly not feasible given the span of, of the size of Australia. Uh, so, you know, the Turnbull plan, um, you know, to run five to the node actually does make sense financially. It's, uh, it's going to get done, you know, give or take, it's a government project, so probably over budget, but, but pretty much on budget. Uh, you know, it's using the last mile of copper, or the last few hundred metres of copper, uh, to, to get into the house, but fibre for the rest of the, 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 uh, the journey back to, uh, to the exchange and beyond. So that's feasible, um, it can roll out a lot faster, and I think we'll start to see, you know, really today kind of marks that turning point, and that's why we're making the, you know, the investment in, um, in M2. Uh, it really is starting to turn. You know, we've seen, uh, I think it's about a million homes passed today, this time next year there'll be two million homes passed, the year after there's going to be four million homes passed. So it's pretty soon, you know, you're talking sort of FY18, um, when you'll, you'll kind of see sort of half, or give or take close to half the uh, population passed by NBN, uh, and that's, that's incredibly soon, so it's, it's well, it's on its way. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll switch it on. We'll, we'll, we'll skip, skip the question about the thoughts of government and, and go to questions from the floor. Oh, there's one at the back, Sue, thank you. Have you got one, yeah, hi, uh, I'm James Riley from Innovation Oz. I wanted to follow up on that government question without necessarily speaking directly to, to Malcolm Turnbull or, or giving him advice. Um, you know, governments do play a role in setting, uh, you know, pulling levers and, and setting a platform for companies to thrive or not. So just in a, in a broad spectrum way, what should government be doing more of? What should they be doing less of? What are they good at? What are they bad at? That's a great point. Um, look, I think you know, Malcolm Turnbull is probably, um, I think, the most focused Prime Minister on the technology and startup space that we've ever had. So I think that's going to be uh, incredibly good for the, for the industry. Things like fixing the employee share option scheme. Um, you know, luckily, when I started the business, we actually had a, you know, a regime that was okay. Uh, it wasn't, wasn't terrible, um, but that's since, since changed and now has been reverted for small businesses, which I think is great. So that's probably one of the biggest things. You know, it's so easy to lose talent overseas uh, because they do offer such you know tax effective and, and ownership schemes. So I think that's a that's a huge role. Uh, I think the you know government funding into uh, creating awareness of startups and, and and you know access to, to cheap legals and support for businesses is huge. You know, when I was talking to Deloitte and, and they did a very very cheap deal for my first order, it was still a hell of a lot of money. 
Um, and I think that's probably you know probably an area where the government could, could do a little bit more. I mean, they have great things for you know tech grants and, and you know the actual technology side of things. But in terms of actually process of setting businesses up, there's not a lot of support. Once you're actually set up, you know it's, it's, it's much better, um, especially if you're in the technology space with R and D grants. But certainly getting the business set up is a huge cost. So look, I, I mean, I don't want to presume what the government is going to do. Um, the thing that I'd probably take away is I think that we've got a government that wants to do something. Which is great. And education, you touch on that. I mean, that's a long-term bet. Getting kids schooling and thinking about entrepreneurialism as a career. Are you passionate about that? Oh, now we're getting macroeconomic policy. I mean, you know, yes, passionate about education. But I think that you know, there's 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 so many aspects to to creating a functioning society that's going to be ready in the next you know 50 years for all of the changes that are coming. You know, I think. In two or three years ago, it was a really foreign concept to have apps on your phone. It's just, um, you, know, you think about what your apps do today, every part of your life is dominated by apps. What's the next 50 years going to look like? I mean, there's just so much to think about there. It's, um, it's not just about one thing. Okay. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Um, Nick Abraham from Norman Rose Fulbright. The press is just carrying today the uh, story of the uh, joint venture with NextGen on the undersea cable to Singapore. Can you talk a little bit about that and why the time is right to, uh, to make that investment? Sure, I won't confirm that we're making the investment until I uh, get back to the office and, um, and address that issue. Um, so for those that don't know, the press broke today that we're uh, potentially or, or rumoured to be investing in a, a cable from Perth to Singapore. Uh, it's a cable that had been previously touted to be built by NextGen called the Australia Singapore cable, very imaginative name, goes from Australia to Singapore. Um, so that cable is um, pretty critical in terms of infrastructure for Australia. You know, on the east coast we have a cable that runs from Australia to the US and that's redundant, it's called the Southern Cross cable and that carries 85% of our uh, uh, internet traffic today. Um, but you know, Southeast Asia and Asia is becoming such a f- more critical destination for traffic. You know, we've got the Chinese language population growing significantly in Australia. Um, you know, the amount of business that's done out of hubs like Singapore for Microsoft and Amazon and uh, you know, Google and Facebook is, is incredible. You know, if you use Microsoft Office 365, chances are 99% of your traffic actually goes that route. Um, so it's becoming incredibly critical for us as individuals of you know, using the internet in our day-to-day lives, um, that route specifically. Um, so we think that you know, the old cable there, we own 10% of that. We actually, you know, Telstra Optus and us own that cable, but it was built in 1999, so it's not going to carry anywhere near enough traffic for the, for the future, or it doesn't, and we could have sold the capacity three times over easily on that, on that cable system. Um, and, and, yeah, we need a new cable. So it seems like uh, an incredible, uh, incredible opportunity. Um, we've got you know, uh, a really uh, partner that would be progressed there if we, if we went down that path. And, uh, yeah, uh, it will be a piece of technology that will that will last, you know, uh, 30, 40, 50 years, uh, and will be critical for the country. And, and how, how much does it cost to lay a first and foremost on a lot of money. <laughs> um, it'll be about 120, 130 million US dollars uh, for the project. Okay, that doesn't sound too bad. If we can get a standard, it sounds like a lot. You look at the returns, more more important. Yeah. Hi, it's uh, Steve Mackay from Creator Tech. Uh, you talked about the thirst for new bits, new things driving you on. What do you do with the bits, the things that you get bored with? Is it just like, yeah, you do it? <laughs> That's a great the, the, question. The managing and pulling the fibers. That's a really good question. Um, what you do is you find really good people to manage that aspect of the business for you, right? Um, that's, I mean, you've got to know your strengths and your weaknesses. Uh, I'm really good at, at new things. 
and I do get bored with old things. So my job is, is, is to understand my weakness, and that's my weakness. So I hire people who are really super good at the bit that you know, I'm not as focused on, not new and shiny. Uh, and I think that's kind of what a growth business is all about. You know, I used to, I literally I used to do the billing running. You know, that was, uh, we were with four people. I would, I would know exactly how much every one of our 50 customers was going to build and I'd do billing running every month. Uh, that gets pretty old when, you, when you're wanting to grow a business, so you hire someone to do that. Uh, then you hire somebody to manage that division because you've got so many customers that you have to have multiple people doing that. So you hire someone there. And then you go and say, well, I've got so much going on in technology and in IT space, I need to hire a CIO. So you just make sure every single person is better at you, better at that task than you are. You know, it's finding someone specialist in that area who's going to do that job better than I would if I was still doing it. And that, that's my management ethos, is always find people who are better at you know, the task that I now need them to do because we've grown than I was at doing it. But also that they're not going to get bored of it like you do. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. Is you hire good people, they'll get bored. Um, but you know, in a growing business, in a business that's gone from no employees to 700 employees in, you know, in almost 10 years, um, the great news is you bring those people along for the journey, and that's what attracts the good people. You know, they want to be in that environment. And then adjunct to that, I mean, going back to that questioning from first principles, I mean, how do you get time to and do that needle gazing, is this being done right? Did you take a, a day a month or a half day a week to do, you know, James 10% time? Yeah, pretty much. Um, Chris would say I'd probably take four weeks off in the middle of the year and go on holidays, but, you know, Chris is, Chris is my deputy CEO. He gets left with the uh, job of doing everything on the way, but um, it, it's actually important, you know, it, it's critical to remain calm and cool and clear-headed in all of these situations, and you can't do that if you just busting yourself up with lots and lots of work and too much to do. Because you can just get scrambled and we all do it, right? You just got too much on, you can't think clearly, you don't see the wood for the trees. My job now in this size of organisation is to keep it clear. Um, so you've got to find ways to do that. And yeah, I'll take a couple of months off over Christmas. I'll show you a couple of weeks off. A couple of months, to be honest. A couple of, a couple of weeks off over Christmas, a couple of weeks in, you know, in, in July. And, you know, you know, just really make sure that you stay calm and centred because these, these are big decisions. When TPG rates you, your, uh, your, your register and you know, you've got to react in 45 minutes and try and get a deal across the line when you, know, you, you, just can't, you can't be stressed and uh, I can't believe not, not to get it. Okay, anyone else in the question in front? Uh, there we go, thank you. Hi, I'm Monique Malone from Commonwealth Bank. Uh, how do you maintain agility as an organisation when you get that big and you've got so many layers of management reporting? How do you move fast in an industry that's moving on? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, two things, it comes down to culture, so that's one of the main things is, but also we, you know, we don't have an organisation that's um, like a tree, you know, where you have to go up to the top to kind of get a decision. Um, we have an ethos internally that I'm not right because I'm the boss, you know, and that goes down throughout the whole organisation. Uh, you know, a lot of people think, hey, I'm the manager, therefore what I say goes. No, you're the manager, your job is to resolve problems and take responsibility, but your job is to also find out what the right answer is, not just you know, your, your view is the right answer. Um, and the other thing we did really early on, which has been hugely successful, is what we call um, delegated empowerment. So I say, well, you know, if I'm too busy off on, you know, trying to, trying to rescue a deal with, with Ancom to respond to an operational issue, well, that's okay. You, you as the operational manager, just go and talk to two of your colleagues, get their buy-in on something, and then flick an email around saying, this is what we've decided, anyone's got 48 hours to object or we're going ahead with it. You know, and that's the kind of empowerment we give to our managers is, just go and think of crazy ideas. Come up with them, but you've got to get people across the line. You know, people you respect, we respect, to, to buy into that idea. If you can get a couple of really smart people to buy into your idea, 
far be it for me to object to it. Um, so I think it's just about empowerment um, and creating an organisation that is lots of mini organisations that can, can you know, react quickly. Um, but you just nailed it. I mean, that is the biggest problem we face today is being 700 people trying to still act like we're 70 people and getting stuff done. Uh, what does the growth of the cloud mean for you as a telco? Uh, it's ups and downs. I mean, in reality, we supply a lot of internet connectivity to the country, so um, that's great for, for that. You know, people using Salesforce, that travels across our pipes. Um, in some ways, the, you know, we have data centres which are full of people's equipment, so in a lot of cases, people are going to take that equipment out and you know, use the cloud, so you will see the data centre um, you know, empty in terms of corporate or direct customers, but then we see cloud providers coming and put equipment into the data centre, so they're our customers again. So you know, it means there's going to be a lot of change and a lot of growth. I think that's probably the, probably the good thing. Um, people's connectivity becomes critical. You know, we talk about the quality of internet connection nowadays to our clients because people just forget, they just go, oh, I've just got this internet link, you know, I don't even know what it is. But when you're outsourcing your sales tracking to Salesforce, you know, your accounts to zero, um, you know, your, your online payroll to Meridian, suddenly your whole business revolves around the internet. And if you can't connect to it well, what if you've got 100 salespeople or 100 staff in accounts who take an extra minute a day to, you know, five times a day to connect to something because the internet connection is slow? That's an entire set of person. You know, that's one full-time equivalent just in sitting around waiting. So um, we're trying to educate the market and we're doing a lot of marketing around the fact that not all the internet is the same. And, you know, we've got to start thinking about the internet connectivity again because it's not just a dumb pipe. How we connect to the cloud is really pretty. But in terms of the focus, I mean, is, is your ownership and management data centres a growth business, a steady as she goes, or a decline? How important is it? Yeah, look, I mean, it's a big cash generator for us. Data centres are incredibly, uh, uh, incredibly simple businesses to run. You've got to get the lights on and the air conditioning up. Uh, if you do that, people pay you money. So it's a, it's a really strong cash generative business. Um, and, and it's not declining, um, it's certainly still growing. Um, yeah, to, people still have lots and lots of equipment in, in offices. You know, in the corner of the office, they've got a rack full of equipment. There's their exchange server, you know, their internal um, mail server, all these types of things. And, and the trend is still greater for people taking that out of their office, putting it into a data centre, but still owning the equipment. The next stage, I think, you know, three years down the track, people will be moving that equipment uh, off and then going into the cloud. But there's still a huge trend for people moving into data centres rather than out. Yeah. Okay. Any more questions? Yeah. Dan? Um, somebody on the curry side, what are you weighing on the debate around net neutrality and regulation of traffic? Yeah, it's a really good question. It's probably not as prevalent here as it is in the US, but you know, it's interesting when you look at this and say, you know, I now own a, um, or will in February, own a massive retail user base, uh, you know, some six, seven hundred thousand uh, retail subscribers with the M2 brands. Uh, then you look at the effect of Netflix driving traffic up and you know, it's coming across that network and I'm supplying it to my users for free. You know? So the first time in my head I actually get the issue that, that uh, the cable networks over in the US have. It's like, well, you're making 10 bucks a month, Netflix, entirely delivered over somebody else's investment. That seems kind of crazy, doesn't it? Like, what a good deal for Netflix. Um, that said, I went to a, a, a a CEO dinner of Asian pack telcos and, and Middle Eastern telcos uh, a few years back, and they were talking about this, and they were they're all incumbent guys, and they're all enraged about Facebook and Google making all of these profits on their infrastructure, and what they were going to do about it. Um, and I actually got the microphone at the end of the night, and I sort of stood up and said, "Guys, there's nothing you can do about it. Right? You need Google and Facebook. 
more than they need you. If you want to go turn them off, good luck. Your users are going to exit you faster than, than you could ever imagine. So the reality is, is content's king. What we've got to focus on as our business is just delivering it better than our competitors and making money on, on dumb plumbing in a lot of ways. It's good, good to hear. Thank you. Uh, all right, time for a couple more, I think. Okay. Um, yeah, okay. We'll, have, we'll take this one as the last one, but just before you do it, uh, your first company was called iNate. Yes. <laughs> Did, is that how you first met Mike? Because he was iNet and hey, James, stop it. No, likely. Thankfully, uh, the internet was a lot smaller then. I didn't get into the uh, trademark infringement uh, from, from the West Coast. Yeah, my business was i-net.net.au, uh, and I had a massive, I think it was 58 permanent modem connections, uh, connecting uh, all the graphic designers who used to use Apple Macs in about 1995, I think. Um, so it wasn't, wasn't in the retail space, and uh, yeah, very, very different markets to kill. All right, Steve. Asia, <coughs> expansion plans or thoughts? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. You see a lot of um, people in startups and lots of businesses decide that you know, Australia's not big enough and they haven't conquered Australia yet. They're going to go over and expand into the US or Asia. Um, I'm pretty pragmatic. We have a skill set here in Australia. We know the market. I've worked in it all my life. I know every single player. I know every single bit of, you know, bit of infrastructure out there. That's a massive intellectual property advantage. Um, if we moved into Asia, I don't think we would. We certainly wouldn't have that advantage, uh, and we'd be competing with people who have that advantage. So, you know, there's people doing it. Superloop, um, uh, you know, building fibre in Singapore and Hong Kong. I think Michael's a director of, of that business, and, and that's you know obviously you know, a really tough gig, but very rewarding. Um, I just think we've got a lot of opportunities in Australia here uh, and New Zealand to focus on. Uh, and I think one of the things we're really good at doing at Focus is knowing exactly what we're good at. And what we're good at is Australia, New Zealand, not, not Asia. Okay, well, I think we'll call it a day. So let's give James a round of applause. Thank you.